If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Is it weird that we go to museums to look at dead bodies. Many of us have stared at ancient Egyptian mummies in institutions across Europe, but should we be thinking of them as historical artefacts, like the objects they're displayed alongside, or human remains? And if we opt for the latter, should we be treating them with more respect? These are all issues that Dr Angela Stien grapples with in her book Mummified. And I spoke to her to find out more. Your book, Mummified, it looks at ancient Egyptian mummies, but it doesn't look at how they were made or how they were buried. It rather looks at their afterlives of these ancient human remains, um, which are often now, of course, kept in European museums. And your book also grapples with some of the debates that are currently happening in those museums around the display of mummies and other historical human remains. What are some of those debates? 
You know, I think that this is a conversation, a debate that has been going on for a long time. And so it feels like it's just coming to light now because it's a bit more in the press. But those are conversations about what, why are the, these bodies in museums today? How did they get there? Why do we go see them? And should we send them back? And that's a, you know, a bit of an overview, but that's the conversation that's been happening for a while uh, on the cases of especially extra-European human remains in museums. One of the questions there you brought up was, why do we go and look at these bodies? And that is interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of us think of mummies just as historical artefacts. But why do you think we think it's all right to go and, and look at dead bodies, essentially, in museums? You know, for me, this is the most fascinating um, sort of area of of research in my work because a lot of the time we don't actually do that. We don't step back and think, "What? Why are we doing this?" Because if you do step back, you realize it's a bit strange to do this. But we're so used in you know in places um, like France or England, but even in the US, where there's lots of human remains, to go and see them, and it's such you know a part of our cultural. Uh, attitude to go and see um, these bodies in museums that a lot of the time we don't really ask why and that's that's what I like to do is really asking why do we do this and actually when I ask people there's a bit of a blank moment uh, because people are like well you know I've always been doing this and you know my parents used to take me my grandparents used to take me and a lot of the time we don't really stop and ask this question the, the answers, there's a lot of answers. I think there's this definitely this sense of curiosity. I think that it's sort of, you know, part of a, a cultural thing that we go and see these bodies. There is this sort of um, relationship to death as well. But a lot of the time, I do think that people don't really think about it and they don't also really think uh, about the fact that these are actually human remains. And that's always been the conundrum with Egyptian mummies is why do you think that we are so fascinated by mummies? I really think that a lot of it has to do with them being so omnipresent in culture that, you know, they're, they're in movies, they're in comics, they're in these horrible histories books that people like in England that I didn't know about before. They're in, you know, a lot of cartoons and those Scooby-Doo cartoons and they're just part of our culture and that's something to interrogate, actually. Why are they so present? And it's not new. They've been part of this European landscape for so long that through history, you know, the way that they that somehow our lives are entangled with the life of Egyptian mummies is actually really quite strange, but also quite peculiar compared to other non-European human remains. You say that one question you're often asked is, is a mummy a body, as we've referred to it so far, or is it a historical artefact? What's your take on that? And can it be both? Yeah, it can absolutely be both. But also, it's so interesting to me that this question keeps uh, popping up. I've been doing this work for you know a decade, and and people still ask me, but is it real? Is that a real person? And for me, that was always the question that surprised me the most because when I used to go to museum when I was younger, I always had this feeling that what I was doing was meeting an ancient person. But the idea that some people are like, is there really, you know, this is the phrasing, is there really someone inside is something that I hear a lot. And it's so interesting. And I think the reason this happened is because, well, mummies are wrapped so much that sometimes you really can't actually tell. Um, but I also think that when people ask this, they're almost kind of 
concern or worried or uncomfortable at the idea that actually there is someone inside. Um, so the question as to whether they're an object or a body, to me, the answer is, of course, they are a body first, and then they've been commodified or objectified by the fact that they've been acquired by museums, but they're always going to be bodies. That's why they're human remains. So there's a lot of fascinating debates to get into there. And I hope we can return to some of those a bit later in the conversation. But something else that you look at in your book is what you call the afterlives of these mummies. So once they were rediscovered in often the 19th century and the early 20th century, what happened to them? So let's delve into that history a bit of how people have engaged with mummies. What are some of the more unexpected ways that mummies have been used in history? I think that what's really interesting is that they've always been sort of part of that European history. So one 19th century, 20th century, it was obviously this big moment of excavations. People, travellers have been going to Egypt for a long time to uncover these bodies. So this sort of fascination has been going on for a very long time. But it does mean that already in the Middle Ages in Europe, people were excavating, digging up uh, ancient Egyptian bodies uh, for probably one of the most unexpected use, which is that they were then grounding these mummies and using them as medicine. And it does show that actually excavations have been going on for a long time in a complete, obviously, uh, uncontrolled and unsupervised ways and for a very curious purpose. Some people who were totally obsessed with mummies, I think it's fair to say, were the Victorians. Can you tell us about some of the ways that they um, engaged with mummies? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about sort of those so Victorian unwrapping parties is something you see a lot if you look into Egyptian mummies online and, and everyone's like, oh, you know, they were throwing these massive parties and basically unwrapping bodies for shows, which did happen. Um, but I always find that it's interesting to look at these Victorian uh, mummy and wrapping in context. And so actually um, the medical world was already unwrapping. So unwrapping is really just removing the wrappings to see what is under Um the medical world was already doing this and had been doing this for a little while to really try and understand mummification. Because if you think about it, the preservation is pretty uh, spectacular. And for a sort of, you know, medical, but also chemistry and so on point of view, is there's a lot to learn there. And so the reason that the, the Victorian mummy and wrappings happen is really because there were a few medical practitioners and one in particular that's really famous in that sort of little world is um, Thomas Joseph Pettigrew. He was a medical practitioner and he really took this practice to the public. But it really happens in the context. So it's not suddenly the Victorians just went wild and thought, let's throw these parties. It really is the medical world transitioning to the public world. And also it's important to think, because that's something that we don't wouldn't think about today, is that actually dissections of bodies, even European bodies, they would happen in public. You could go and see a, a, a you know a public medical lecture and see a dissection. And also people were a lot more used to seeing sort of death in general. So what looks to us completely extravagant was actually kind of in context. It doesn't change the fact that people would go and pay to see a mummy and wrapping and there's a lot to think about and to unpack about this. But it really 
is not a sudden craze. So you said there's a lot to unpack there. I wonder if we could do a little bit of that unpacking. Were there any concerns raised at the time of these mummy unwrappings about, firstly, whether it was damaging in terms of damaging historical artefacts, if we think of mummies as historical artefacts, but also if we think about mummies as bodies, any ethical concerns? Yeah, there is this very interesting episode uh, still with uh, Thomas Joseph Pettigrew, so this medical practitioner that was unwrapping mummies, where he actually asked the British Museum uh, to unwrap uh, some of their their uh, Egyptian bodies, and they refused. And um, they say this, you know, sort of like polite response, but say that basically it would damage the integrity of the collection. Um, no, there is sort of two ways to look at it. Pettigrew was a bit of a character. He would just sort of get into fights and arguments. And so the question is whether just the British Museum didn't want to be too associated with him. But that question of, you know, damaging the integrity of the collection is interesting because obviously when you unwrap these bodies, um, at the time it was completely destructive. So there was this kind of realization that, you know, this was destroying the collection and those bodies, whether it was actually an ethical worry about the fact that these were humans I don't really think they were there but I think like with everything there were a few people that were concerned but I don't think that it was on the level of you know more recent concerns about the question of ethics a lot of these conversations that we're having now they're really very slow progressions and seeing change is even slower sometimes. One of the stories that you share in your book um, is the story of what you call the missing mummies at the Louvre, where you actually worked, if I'm right. Um, what can you tell us about them? So I grew up in a suburb of Paris, and so I've been going to the Louvre uh, quite, you know, a lot when I was young. And my dream was to be able to walk at the Louvre. So I became a gallery attendant, which is a job that I think is actually brilliant to sort of see how people interact with collections. And so I was really excited by them. I already knew I wanted to be an Egyptologist. And so I'd ask all the questions like about the collections. I wanted to learn everything. And um, and I, I had moved to London. So I had already spent a year in, in London where I studied Egyptology and I had gone to the British Museum and so, so many mummies on display. And then at the Louvre, there was only one. And so I just, you know, asked because I thought it was so interesting to see the difference between the two museums. And, um, and someone said, oh yeah, that's because, you know, they decayed and they were buried in the garden in the most casual way. <laughs> and I was like, is that I, I was waiting for the sort of like joke punchline and it never came. And I thought, is this actually serious? But it's the Louvre and the Louvre is a very big museum with a lot of people and a lot of sort of like gossiping and stories. And I thought, okay, this is probably not true. And then I would go back every summer to walk there and uh, and someone mentioned it again. And so I really went on a quest to find what this story was about. And so I went to look for the document and it took me in, in sort of very unlikely places. And, you know, there is a church that we visited and asked if they had mummies and I can never walk back in because that person thinks I've just lost my mind. And, and I had a you know, uh, given up a bit on these stories until I did my PhD and I thought, well, I really have to find out. So I went to the um, uh, sort of equivalent of the National Archives uh, and really just 
tried to find something that I didn't even know if it existed. So I found the document eventually. And this is one of the uh, most fascinating story for me, because of course, there is all this journey to finding the information, but also because it's the most unlikely story. And so what really happened is that in 1827, when the uh, Louvre had its Egyptian department, Quite late, 50 years after the British Museum had Egyptian collections, the Louvre still didn't have any. And so Jean-François Champollion, that people will know for the disfragment of hieroglyphs, um, was building up a collection. He was also a curator, a uh, first curator of the Egyptian department. And so the story is that just a few months before the department opened, uh, well, something went quite wrong in those Egyptian galleries. Um, and that something is that two of the bodies that had been brought from Egypt uh, decayed in the collections of the Louvre. Um, they decayed so badly that they had to be um, removed from the collections and they had to be buried uh, away from the collections. And would that just be because it was too hot or because they were stored in the wrong conditions? I guess, do we have any information on that? Uh, on these specific, we don't. But actually, we know other cases that happened. So we know it was really sort of like organically the decade. So it's not an accident or... And it is definitely environmental condition. What we have to think is a lot of the time people were uh, going to travel to Egypt. They wanted to bring back these bodies as souvenirs. Absolutely not taking into account that these are human remains. They're not your everyday sou holiday souvenirs. Um, and human remains have to be kept in absolutely present condition, especially when you have organic material. So we're not talking about skeletons, which also require some sort of accommodation but we're talking about bodies that still have you know the skin and even though they're dry they still need a lot of care and museums you know today they know that it actually is not that easy to look after human remains uh, but especially you have to think we're in 1827 this is not the Louvre today that has you know sort of climate controlled rooms and so it was sort of doomed to happen. We know that it happened elsewhere. And in fact, we know that Champollion, just before that, so a few years before, he went to Turin to study the collection. And actually, Turin, the Egyptian museum, which you can still visit today, was the inspiration for his galleries. And he observed the same thing. He wrote in a letter that actually he'd been there and there were mummies that had putrefied, that they just didn't survive. Same thing happened to his collection. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Are we really learning more by seeing these bodies? Is our anxiety about not seeing bodies in museums really about not seeing them? Or is it a more personal anxiety that's reflected? We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. <laughs> Something you say in the book is that a lot of us in Europe think it's quite normal, of course, to see mummies in European museums. But if we actually unpack it, the the methods um, by which they ended up in these museums are very grounded in a specific historical context, aren't they? I wonder if you could just talk about how issues like colonialism have shaped the collections that we now have in our museums. I think that what's really important is to think that uh, wherever you go in, for example, in England, so I'm currently in Leicester, uh, the local museum has Egyptian bodies. If you actually think about it, having four mummified bodies in the East Midlands of England, so sort of in the center, is completely odd. They're completely, it's the wrong landscape, it's the wrong, you know. And the, the thing is, we never really question why they're here. But the reason they're here is acts of removal, it's displacement, and it's often violent displacement, it's often looting. And so those bodies that we see in museums anywhere outside of Egypt, they have been removed. And a lot of the time when you see labels in museums, you'll have, you know, arrived in 1827 or, you know, they don't move. I mean, Egyptian mummies do not walk, but also any other artifact. There is an act. It's the way that museums have framed it in a passive way, where they just arrived here, they just, you know, were collected. They actually were taken away from a place. And while there are a few sort of historical, political donations, most of the objects, especially in France and England, because of our history of colonialism of invasion, you know, France had Napoleon's attempted invasion, England controlled Egypt. They are not objects that just arrive and they are not bodies that just arrive. And especially when we are thinking about human remains, we really have to phrase it as these were bodies taken from their countries, their ancestors taken from their countries. So there is a context to 
to these uh, bodies being in anywhere, in any country outside of Egypt, that is very important. And that's something that we don't discuss enough. But for me, I like to think about it. I like to phrase it as displacement because that's really what happened. And in many ways, it's also a way to think about the fact that today we have these people, these ancient people that are in a museum that have been displaced from the context where they had wished to be buried. And so it actually is a rather violent act to actually take someone away from their dream, you know, resting place and displace them for what eternity or at least a very long time at the moment to a place they probably didn't even know existed. How important do you think it is that these are the remains of non-European people? I think that, you know, while all conversations on human remains in museums today are important and they all sort of fit into conversations about, you know, death and consent, the fact that we're talking about non-European bodies is very important because a lot of the time the removal of their bodies, but also the invasion of the lands, you know, so of Egypt, of modern Egypt, uh, all of this was part of acts of control. And a lot of the time there are, there are, you know, there's this period in time where Europe was really trying to control the narratives about ancient Egypt. So their origin, their achievements, the reason they were trying to do this was to try for many people, and we're talking about very influential researchers and curators in places like France and England, um, they were trying to prove that the ancient Egyptians had strong connections to Europe in terms of their racial origin because we were in a time of colonialism. And if you think about it, Egypt is uh, located on the African continent. And so while Europe was trying to sort of like absorb and associate and sort of... Um, controlled the history of ancient Egypt and and take credit for some of the achievements they were also trying to control Africa there is this complete sort of like you know disconnect between these practices and the way to reconcile this was to try and to think about and research but also control and sometimes distort the racial origin of the ancient Egyptian it's an important part of history that we need to talk about, but it's also an important thing to think about when we're thinking about the way that uh, Egypt and its people, ancient and modern, are represented in museums. And so an interesting example is always the fact that in most museums, you will see a section about Egypt and then a section about Africa. And there's a strong di disconnect. And while uh, a visitor might not actually think about it. It kind of creates this disconnect in your mind where if you don't think about it, you won't actually sort of, you know, connect the two. And a lot of the time, ancient Egypt is also sort of closer to European collections and so on. And while this is starting to change in museum, it's kind of all these things that we've absorbed and not really thought about. And I think it's really important to talk about. Mm. And all of these are, of course, issues that museums today are grappling with. And sometimes decisions they've made to update um, exhibitions have been controversial. But what do you think museums can do to, to make the display of mummies, if they choose to display them, more sensitive? Are there any museums that you think are doing things well? Yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of effort to think about new ways to display. And while some museums have just um, not engaged yet with this conversation, quite a few have been doing things that are 
sort of provoking new conversations. Um, in museum, the trend has been to at least sort of try to warn people, and that's been the great development in the past few years uh, in the sense that we have to think that even if we don't think about the fact that, you know, the ancient Egyptian and so on, there's still dead bodies and not everyone's comfortable with going to a museum which should and that's a big shoot, be a safe space. And then you might just, you know, walk around and suddenly find yourself in front of human remains that might not be comfortable for personal reasons, for, you know, cultural, religious reasons. And so there are no efforts to try and to have warning signs that say, you know, this room uh, contains human remains and so on. Um, and so, for example, this is something that has been done by um, um, Dr. Stephanie Boonstra, the curator of the Leicester Museum, which is uh, sort of where I'm now and so the room has actually been divided into a section on sort of everyday life and then a different section of the room um for death and it says you know this room contains human remains and so that's a positive I've you know witnessed going into the museum people actually seeing this sign is sort of turning around so that's one trend that seems to be uh done in more and more museum and that I think is positive in terms of display, there's a lot of sort of experimentation around how we could ethically display ancient Egyptian human remains. No, the difficulty is that how do we define ethics and what is an ethical display of these displaced bodies? Is it even possible? Um, there are ways to make things less bad. And I think this is where we're sort of aiming Um in, in sort of in, you know, when I get asked what I would do, um, I think that we're sort of in front of a conundrum because the ideal situation would be for these bodies to not be in museums. And that's something that we just, you know, we can't reverse history. And so however we do it, we still have to acknowledge that actually th this issue is going to remain. So what we can do is try to make things more respectful but while acknowledging that actually we do not know what is respectful to these ancient people and also acknowledging that, you know, 3,000 years of history, 3,000 plus, not everyone in ancient e Egypt agreed on what respect is. So there is the warning sign and there is sort of trying to find a better display. So sometimes it's darker room, it's asking people to be quiet, it's obstructing cases so that, you know, it's not too much in your face and also so that it's not too much of a show for the deceased person. Then the third strategy is removal from display. And some people would say, and I'm sure that you've heard this over the course of your research, some people would say, what's really that wrong with displaying a mummy? They would say they've been dead thousands of years. They may have been in the collections of a museum for perhaps hundreds of years. And by going to see them, we can learn about this ancient culture, um, whether scientifically or historically. So what would your response to comments like that be? You know, I hear often people say, I would be quite happy to be in a museum. And and I, I absolutely acknowledge this. And I really think that there might be cases where maybe those bodies wouldn't mind. And that's, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not ever speaking on behalf of these ancient people uh, because they're also not my, you know, ancestor. I do not want to like sort of um, interrupt the other conversations that are happening around, you know, ancestral human remains. 
What I do think is that a lot of the time when people have these conversations about this is fine, they've been long dead. Um, what I think is missing in these discourses is what I like to call, you know, emotional conversations. So I think a lot of the time we're arguing against one another, but actually I think that what we need to have is, is conversations that are about emotions, about death and about life and, you know, and about being, I always say that, you know, being human is, is what being more ethical is. So I want to know whether actually these people really learn more by seeing these bodies or they would learn just as much by not seeing bodies. And there's a lot of culture that we learn about without seeing human remains. So are we really learning more by seeing these bodies? Is our anxiety about not seeing bodies in museum really about not seeing them? Or is it a more personal anxiety that's reflected uh, in sort of, you know, sometimes the, the conversations, the debates can be quite harsh and quite violent. And I always think, what well, you know, are you really upset about not seeing Egyptian mummified bodies or any other human remains that are being removed? Or is it a thing that's more personal? Or is it more, you know, an anxiety that if you acknowledge that this is an actual person that used to have feelings and used to have belief, then you're acknowledging death in a way, or you're acknowledging the existence and the persistence of colonial thinking and so on. So a lot of the time, I think that what we need is just more conversations that are not you against me. We're not researchers and curators against the public. Actually, we're, we, you know, we're working with communities around the world on, and, you know, on different topics. And so I think we need just more emotional conversations and perhaps especially in, in the West, we're not very good at about talking about emotions and death and, you know, the reasons that museum exists. So I'd go towards this and towards just more engagement like this. Something you talk about in your book is the use of new technologies to study mummies or to display them. So virtual unwrappings, uh, using things like CT scans. And I thought, you know, this sounds great because this can so solve a lot of these ethical dilemmas because it's non-invasive. We can study these mummies without having to open them up or mess them around too much. But you suggested that actually, in many ways, it actually just presents new ethical dilemmas to grapple with. Can you explain how? Yes. So I think that um, we've seen in the past sort of decade, it's obviously been going on for a bit longer, but it's more visible in the past decade, the introduction of new technology in museums in a lot of different areas of museums that have really helped with uh, public engagement, but also research and Egyptian mummified bodies have not escaped this trend of, you know, being um, entangled in these new technologies. For bodies in particular, it meant that while before when we wanted to study Egyptian bodies, well, of course, as we've seen, you know, in the Victorian time, if it was basically you had to open the bodies and so you had to destroy them irreparably. But then the development of things like CT scans and so on have really helped see inside the bodies. So what you get is basically you get lots of information and no physical damage. And so while this is really exciting, it meant that suddenly these became available to the public, but also to the display and with lots of different ways to interact with this. And the way that today you can interact with this the most in museums is having sort of touchscreen engagement. So in a lot of display, um, you would end up being able to virtually unwrap a body by sort of touching a screen or seeing under the layers and seeing lots of information. And that's very 
exciting from a technological point of view that we can do more and more. And, you know, even as I speak, there's probably more being developed and, you know, uh, because technology is going so fast. The problem with technology going so fast is we don't really have time to stop and reflect on what's happening, to stop and think whether studies that are being done about, you know, reproduction or sort of like 3D printing of some organs of the of the bodies, whether these should actually truly happen. We don't really have time to think about what the benefits are. So it's a bit the same as when I think about whether we need to see human remains for educational purposes in my research, then it's the same thing. Do we actually need those 3D and virtual technology to be visible? And the reason that I'm asking this is not because I believe in hiding things from the public and I'm the opposite. I'm very passionate about public interactions, but it's because I'm thinking about the added ethical challenges. So if you think about it, today you can go to a museum and you can see the CT scans that you and I might have at a private medical practice where our data remains private, but you can see that on display today. Not only can you see it, but you can interact and even play with it. And so a lot of these virtual unwrapping, you can basically sort of play around. And I've witnessed this in museums where you can unwrap, rewrap, unwrap, rewrap, and so on. And the technology is so fascinating that you kind of find yourself caught in this kind of play. Um, but what you're playing with is the real person. And so I do not have a definite answer to this, but what I witness is added ethical challenges. Is it really right that we're now playing with the with the remains of a person? And is photography or scans or you know X-rays is uh, more ethical, or are we just creating a new challenge in what you know we call bioethics and all of these sort of ethical challenges around? medical information and imagery. So, uh, you know, technology is very exciting, but it's also just constant new challenges and constant new things to think about. You said how the question of mummies and museums really faces us with a conundrum. But if I pushed you and asked what you thought should happen with these mummies, what would you say? Should they be taken off display? Should they be displayed more sensitively? Or should they be sent back to Egypt? This is a question that's so interesting and at the same time so difficult because my personal opinion first, I don't think uh, dictates practice. I'm a researcher and so I'm more here to challenge. So I would like to ask these questions uh, more than be in a position to have to answer it. Uh, I am in favor of all three. I think the most important thing to keep in mind is the sheer number of human remains from Egypt, and I'm not talking about all the other ones because that's actually quite as astounding. But the ones from Egypt in museums around the world, the number of them is actually uh, not just impressive, but sometimes horrifying. And so having a blanket answer would be very difficult um, if we repatriate uh how and how many and at, all at the same time would be completely overwhelming. And yet I am very much in favor of repatriation when there are uh, queries for repatriation. When we remove them from display, what happens next? When you remove them, what do you do? What happens in storage? How do you keep the ethical practice and display and conservation behind the scene? 
And do you have the capacity to do that? As we've mentioned, human remains need to be in controlled environment. We need to make sure that they're looked after. And while many museums are doing it very well and have the structure for this to keep them in storage, many don't. And I have seen human remains decay in storages of museums, the same way that they decayed at the Louvre, you know, centuries ago. As I always, you know, say, it's not a mummy's heaven in storage. So we need to make sure that the practice continues. And if we display them still, but more ethically, we need to make sure that the conversation is visible. And I think that regardless of the three options, and maybe there are more options, but if we look at these three, what is important is that what we decide, it all needs to have emotional conversations, ethical conversations happening, because engaging with this topic is important because it's not going to be a watershed even where everything is going to change now. So whichever decision museums take and whichever opinion people have, we need to still have these conversations. And I think for me, having more transparent conversations around the historical past and the current challenges, this needs to be what's controlling the decision because that's always the first step. That was Angela Stien. Her book, Mummified, The Stories Behind Egyptian Mummies in Museums, is available now, published by Manchester University Press. If you'd like to hear more on ancient Egypt and the most famous mummy of all, then make sure to listen to our podcast series on Tutankhamun. You can find that by searching for Tutankhamun in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Yeah.